informative and entertaining. The Aaron Rand Show. Catch Aaron live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. Time for entertainment to check on things. Bill Brownstein of the Montreal Gazette is here in studio today. Hey, Bill. Hey, Aaron. It's been so long we've been together. It what, has. A few hours. Of By the room. way, congratulations. I understand the gripes are back on CTV. Yes, and, and, and back at you because... You're on with me, and Terry oh, DeMonte right. and Mitsumi. Yeah, we, we had fun. Yeah, we a had viewing joy. appointment today, which you've now missed, although I'm sure you can find it online. You can find it online, so, yeah, Montreal.ctv.ca, the gripes. We vent well. We do. Yes. Yeah, we're big venters. Yeah. Uh, let's take a look at what's coming up on the weekend. Let's start with the movie, because I've been hearing uh, about this movie now for too long. The, Magnific- the Magnificent Seven, which is a remake of the original Magnificent Seven, which was a remake of the Italian movie. Which was a remake of the, the Japanese. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So, have you seen this? I have not. But right, I, I understand, though, that if you are into guns, there is a gun scene. There is a, a bloody gun scene that lasts for about a half an hour. Uh, I like the fact that they brought Denzel Washington in and Ethan Hawke is into the equation. Uh, I, I'm guessing it's not a chick flick, though, Aaron. Well, ladies, Chris Pratt is in it. Yes. Right? So but uh, that may be enough. I don't know. I think if it isn't Blazing Saddles, it's hard. It's it's not a date flick per se. But okay. I'm told that a lot of people are saying it does not live up to expectations, although the director is good, uh, Antoine Fuqua, who did Training Day, The Equalizer, and all the rest. So it remains to be seen. But this is a weekend. A lot of stuff going on in town. Uh, one of the funniest comedians around, Tig Natero. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with yep. her? And I um, mean, she did a special on HBO. She's been to the Comedy Festival, basically dealing with and it doesn't sound like a lot of laughs but with her breast cancer and it's uh, very very insightful very edgy stuff which at the beginning a lot of people were sort of taken aback by right yeah and yet uh, she brings it up beautifully. She's very, very funny and uh, worth catching tonight at Monument National. And, and tomorrow night, Trevor Noah. I like Trevor Noah. Oh, Trevor Noah is terrific. Um, the, the thing about Trevor Noah is you have to understand the guy's 32 years old. He had to f- fill in some huge shoes in those of uh, the John wonderful Stewart. John Stewart. Yeah. And um, as a stand-up guy, he's got a whole other act. Uh, I saw him at the Just for Last Festival last year where he did this brilliant deconstruction of the Oscar Pistorius trial. He does not pull his punches, this guy. And uh, Trevor Noah was from South Africa. He originally. is from South okay. Africa, and has had quite a troubled existence himself. I mean, right. a biracial family that he came from. While well, his father was uh, black, mother his father was white, mother black, and uh, living in South Africa, that was a crime, and he could have been sent to prison yeah. for years as a consequence. The family could have. In any event, uh, I, I think he's done an admirable job of filling in for John Stewart. So. Uh, a lot of fun. He'll be at Théâtre Saint-Denis tomorrow night, sir. And that, that's Saturday night or Sunday night? Saturday, Saturday night. night. Yes, sir. All right. And uh, by the by, we, uh, you know, what would this town be without a festival or six? The Pop Montreal Festival yeah. is around John Cale coming. All sorts of events taking place around the Rialto and See, everywhere See, I, I talked to one of the guys, one of the organizers for the, uh, for the Pop Montreal Festival, I'm not sure how this is a festival because it's not just not music or just art. It's literally it's everything. Yeah, it's like a it's combination of fifty word, different it's things. It's films. It's everything, and it's a basketball game. Aaron, it is as well, uh, Wind yeah. Butler Arcade Fire will be uh, playing in some promotional fundraiser at the McGill State. Well, at the McGill Complex, a sports complex tomorrow afternoon. There'll be stars from the world of basketball and music. He being the biggest star, and by biggest, he's a, he could have played basketball. And this is a charity game. It is a charity game, right. sir. And so that's something to look forward to. And then, of course, you've just got the fact that uh, there's so much else going on in our beautiful city. You can just imagine how this tempo is going to look when that's put up. Because I yeah. know that uh, we'll have to wait, though. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And so we can rhapsodize uh, about that. By as well. the way, if you do want to see anything pop Montreal, because there are so many uh, yeah. aspects, if you will, to this festival, you can go online. There's like 500 different shows. You're going right. On, so uh, there's lots to see. Exactly. John Cale coming is something yeah. I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And by the way, another festival coming. Uh, on Wednesday, the Montreal Black International Film Festival, and Spike Lee will be coming to town next a week Saturday to uh, bring in his latest flick, which is Michael Jackson's Journey from uh, Motown to Off the Wall. And this is a documentary. Documentary, yes, sir. Before and he, it's kind of like a prequel to the Spike Lee film Bad, which okay. was Bad Twenty Five, uh, marking the twenty fifth anniversary, and that was two thousand and twelve. What's the buzz on this one? I've seen it. It's it, it's quite good. I mean, basically, this is a film. I mean. You see the child genius, the Prince of Pop, before he was like what he became, and uh, it's a remarkable story. We lose sight of the fact that this was one of the most
most talented singer dancers around, held back by his family and yeah. all the rest, and uh, was a genius. And then his a lot of his world caved in later on. So this is going to be shown as part of the yes. Montreal Black Film Festival. Yes, a week Saturday at uh, Concordia's okay. Hall building, and uh, Spike Lee will be in town to. Uh, He's been here before for this. Yes, right? he has. Okay, for for Q and A following the film. Interesting, though. You mentioned Michael Jackson, a documentary of. You know, from the time he started as a young, young performer. At the same time, Ron Howard is involved in this new Beatles movie, right? That's yes. found footage that we never saw before, pretty much following the Beatles from the time they started until, until they the, became gigantic. And then when they stopped touring, basically, and recorded in the studio. Yeah, and uh, that was playing for about three days uh, at the Cineplex Forum. And But if you want to catch it on the Movie Network Sunday, it's okay. being shown at 2.45 and 4.45. And quite an interesting look back at the Beatles. Have you seen it? I have. Okay. And, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, they didn't like the big crowds. They liked recording. And uh, I'm a little shocked by the fact that I know one clip from this movie that I saw suggests that, you know, I think Paul McCartney may have said it, but Ringo was in the room saying that Ringo, Ringo Starr was the guy who really brought the band together. And I'm just sitting there going, no, that can't possibly be. But that's that, what he says. That might have been under a haze of a certain yeah. <laughs> kind. Uh, no, I, he's saying this now, yeah, looking I, back. So perhaps maybe to be nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bill Brownstein of the Montreal Gazette. Thank you, Billy. Uh, joy. See you later. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. W5 was a forerunner to CBS's 60 Minutes, which is, of course, still on the air now, as is W5 here. Lloyd Robertson is going to join us in just a sec to look back on some of its uh, most splendid moments. But first, here are a couple of clips from over the years. See if you recognize this. Misha and Andy laid down flat on the path as the snow came down and carried Misha out, you know, 100 feet into the middle of the lake. What do you mean by peace? Just... All, all, its, all its aspects, peace of mind, peace in the street, peace in your own home. I didn't know until like a year ago that that was different than everybody else, that, that my face was so weird. I uh, realized that that's what, what, is, what my special thing is, I guess, is that I'm weird. Jim Carrey from back in 1983, before that John Lennon uh, from back in 1969 and Give Peace a Chance, and Justin Trudeau. Uh, from back in 2002, speaking of his brother, Misha. Lloyd Robertson is on the line right now. Uh, can I call you Lloyd? Lloyd? Absolutely, Aaron, of course. You've been with, with you. Yeah, you've been with the show now for about, what, five years? But I know that obviously you go back with CTV and before that, of course, with CBC for many, many years. Looking back on the history uh, of this particular show of W5, what are some of the moments that stand out the most? Well, just let me preface your question, uh, the the answer, I should say, to your question by saying that uh, I was listening to your newscast, and I noted that uh, there is now a group called Anglophones for Independence uh, cropping up. By by group, you should should take group to mean a few people. (laughs) Yeah, I think they said 50. In any case, uh, I wanted your uh, listeners to know that uh, we're not going to have too much politics in tomorrow night's 50th anniversary show for W5. But uh, we will uh, have in there, um, uh, you know, the clip that you played at the beginning of that package a moment ago, uh, Justin Trudeau talking about the death of his brother at Kokanee Glacier Park uh, in 1998. Uh, now, he went out there, W5's Tom Clark took him out there, and um, he walked the glacier, and he sat down in the snow. And this is one of the most touching moments uh, over the years that we've had on W5. He sat down in the snow, and you could just see his shoulders slump, his head tilt forward, and he began to sob. And uh, that's uh, that's a very, uh, a very touching moment in the whole hour tomorrow night. And um, as far as the Trudeaus are concerned, we, uh, we also uh, touch uh, on Carol Taylor's interview with Margaret Trudeau, where for the first time she reveals uh, her mental illness. Uh, and uh, Carol Taylor told us a story about that interview in which she said this interview almost did not come off because uh, there, there, something happened two or three days before, and uh, I'm going to leave that as a teaser so that you can tune in tomorrow night and find uh, out okay. what it was that almost caused that interview to be canceled completely. Um, and also, um, in, in referring to um, uh, Justin Trudeau and the family, uh, back in um, after the death of Michelle, uh, there was a, a shot in the program of the whole family leaving the church in Montreal, and you can just see how devastated they were. And Pierre's uh, shoulders and head were sagging, 
And uh, Justin himself now says, Prime Minister Trudeau now says that his father was never the same after the death mm-hmm. of the youngest son. So uh, there are those moments in there. But um, apart from that, we've got uh, lots to um, lots to concentrate on through the last 50 years of W5, uh, including uh, Pierre Trudeau's um, famous legislation, which came into effect in 1969. Uh, W5 carried the story in the late 60s of the sentencing of the last homosexual in Canada for uh, homosexual crimes, as uh, they were described at that point. And the uh, Supreme Court heard an appeal of his sentence, uh, but they dismissed it because they knew that new legislation, uh, prompted by Pierre Trudeau's famous statement of the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation, that new legislation was coming down the track. So that happened in 1969, which legalized homosexual acts between consenting adults in Canada. Uh, so uh, there's a lot in there that touches on the important legislation over the last 50 years. But more than that, I think, um, the program shows that generation to generation, decade after decade, W5 uh, has been successful because it always touched upon the issues of the times that affected real people. Um, and uh, and that, that happened time after time after time. Uh, we see it uh, during the AIDS crisis in the 80s, where Dennis McIntosh, our correspondent, went down to what was described as a shooting gallery in New York City and uh, talked to heroin addicts who were um, exchanging needles. And while people were saying at that time that, uh, you know, you could get AIDS, they weren't sure how you could get AIDS, uh, but they knew that... Um, you know, exchanges of bodily fluids might be one case, and as it turned out, according to the doctors of the time, and I think it applies even today, that the only way you could get it was through an exchange of bodily fluids. And um, the um, the medical community lauded W5's contribution to uh, national health in that respect, because they said, here's an example where a media broadcast can, in fact, uh, help the community understand uh, the importance of knowing about a certain medical condition. And then in the 90s, Eric Malling uh, did uh, one of the first stories uh, about uh, deficit financing, uh, when we suddenly became aware that, uh, no, governments couldn't just spend and spend and spend without consequences, because New Zealand at the time uh, was going into bankruptcy. So they didn't just want to print more money because they knew the consequences of that, Look at Germany in the 1930s. So um, they had to start cutting their budgets. And deficit financing then became the subject of the day uh, throughout the world. And you may remember Paul Martin's budget of 1995, in which uh, budgets in Canada were slashed. And uh, the attempt was to put the country on a more sound financial footing, uh, because our our credit rating was uh, getting into trouble all over the world at that time. And uh, indeed, he did that. Uh, the liberals under Jean Chrétien did that in the 90s. And the country has been in a relatively good financial shape ever since. So uh, each step of the way, every decade, every generation, W5 has been there uh, to cover the stories that mattered uh, to people, to governments, to institutions, all through the years. So this will be tomorrow night, Saturday night, 7 o'clock, the 50th anniversary of W5. And uh, you'll be there, of course, manning things, I guess. is. Uh, I just wondered, just curiously, uh, before we get out of here, you know, you've gone from a news background. I know you've done other stuff as well. But how different is it working on an investigative journalism show as opposed to, say, working on just hard news? Well, I did 41 years of hard news, uh, Aaron, um, from 1970 at the CBC uh, to uh, 76 when I came to CTV. Uh, for another 35 years, uh, so 41 total. And uh, in daily news, of course, you're dealing with uh, one minute and 35 seconds or 2.15 if you really push it. But um, on W5, you can take a story and uh, look at it through a 20-minute time frame, uh, which is much better because uh, you can really work uh, in-depth coverage. Sure. And uh, I enjoyed that very much after all my years of uh, doing things at a minute 30 or 2.15. Uh, and um, I, I've worked on W5 now for the last five years, and tomorrow night will be my last program as host of the show, uh, host and chief correspondent, because we're turning over to Kevin Newman, who will become uh, host and managing editor uh, for the first regular broadcast of the season, which will be on October the 1st. Uh, I will continue. I, I now transfer to another title. Not sure exactly what it means, but it's CTV News Special Correspondent, 
And uh, that means that I will be doing some items for W5 and appearing here and there on other properties uh, to add uh, analysis or interpretation to events uh, whenever uh, it's deemed uh, to be effective. Well, listen. So, um, so for me, it's been a great career uh, on at all levels of um, news broadcasting. Uh, over the last uh, roughly 60 years I've been in the business. Listen, it's an amazing career, uh, and it continues, and uh, I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to watching this tomorrow night. Congratulations to you, Lloyd, and uh, all the best. Thank you very much, Aaron. Good to talk with you. Good talking with you. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. James Manning is on the line of the Montreal Gazette. Jim, let's start off by talking about something we haven't talked about for a while, and that's Gilles Duceppe. What's he stuck his nose into now? Well, stuck his nose into it. He uh, we deigned to give an interview to the Parliamentary Bureau of uh, the Journal de Montréal. And uh, during that interview, he basically said that Jean-François Lisée, who now, uh, at least one survey says, is neck and neck with Alexandre Cloutier. He is not worthy to be leader of the Parti Québécois. That lack of worthiness uh, he traces directly to uh, Lisée's uh, rather, how can I put it, interesting move last week, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, people like Adil Sharkoui, the rather uh, 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 controversial Islamic uh, activist, uh, was the kind of guy who would support Alexandre Cloutier because of his stand on, on immigration and on, on Quebec identity. And he said this was, you know, this was really unworthy of someone who's, who's going to, uh, who expects to lead the PQ. So, of course, things being equal, uh, they take these comments and they trot over to Jean-Francois Lise, who, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, did a good job of, of parrying this. He basically said, look, uh, stuff like this, it's good training for me to become uh, head of the PQ, because let's face it, in the PQ, once you get the job, everybody is criticizing what you do. He refused to refer to Gilles Duceppe as a belle-mère, which is, you know, basically the designation they give to former PQ leaders who, uh, who then turn around and second-guess whoever's holding the job at the moment. Uh, it was interesting to note that Lise said that, you know, I don't like that expression. It's I, this mother-in-law idea. I don't like it, which is interesting because he worked for both Bernard Landry and for, uh, for uh, uh, Lucien Bouchard, both of whom have been relentlessly described, and indeed Jacques Parizeau, uh, uh, all of whom have been de- described as les belles mères de la partie québécoise. So, uh, yeah, and you know, the, the, the debate's coming up on Sunday, so that, that's going to be, you know, you, you could sell tickets to that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be uh, uh, very interesting to see what Martin Ouellette and Alexandre Cloutier have to say to Mr. Lise, because let's face it, he will now be the guy to beat. This 95 the split where he had, where Lise was holding the five percent not there anymore. Uh, a crop survey this week suggests that Lise at the head of the Parti Québécois could actually win the min- uh, minority government. So you can bet his three adversaries will be how can I put it uh, gunning for Lise. It's going to be a very very interesting debate. You know I find this fascinating that Lise is now all of a sudden after he just admitted a week or not even a week ago that you know he trailed quite significantly in the polls. Now things have turned on a dime. He's already said what did he say to Martin to Martin Ouellette that you know uh, her kind of behavior once he's PQ leader won't be yeah. tolerated? Yeah, that well, was apparently in a closed-door uh, meeting, and, and Madame Ouellette has, has said, in fact, that's what happened, that he did give her a talking to. Alexandre Cloutier was contending that, uh, you know, he felt that uh, Madame Ouellette felt threatened. She denied that, uh, but basically Lise said, once, you know, once this is over, you've got to toe the line. We, we, we have to be united, but you have to toe the line, and uh, you know, that kind of, the conduct that's going on right now won't be tolerated. I have a sneaking suspicion, and I've mentioned this earlier in the week, I have a sneaking suspicion that, uh, you know, if things really don't go Mount Simulet's way. I don't think she's going to feel that she's welcome in the PQ, and I, would, I wouldn't be surprised to see her perhaps move to a different party or indeed uh, citizen independent because this woman will not uh, relinquish her, um, her you know, job one is the sovereignty of Quebec yeah. as soon as possible. It flies in the face of every single poll that's going on. Uh, to say that she's a long shot is to, to understate things, and I, I don't see how, could she, how she could remain in a PQ uh, being led by Jean-Francois or indeed by Alexandre Cloutier, given that her, her, her adamant stand on sovereignty. Let's move on and talk about uh, this. I find this quite interesting. Montreal's public health department now yes. d- decided this was a good time to weigh in on this issue. They yes. say legal weed 
shouldn't be used as a revenue source. Exactly. I, I thought yeah, that yeah. was the yeah. whole point. Yeah, you, you and me both. And, and as, as I say, my, my first thought was, what have you been smoking, to say something like that out loud? You know, to their credit, the Montreal Public Health Department, uh, you know, they, they don't want to jump on any bandwagons. They're saying if you're going to legalize it, uh, don't make it, don't look at it as a cash cow. Don't look at it, you know, this is something that we have to do, fine. There's a, there's a public will to have this done, that's fine too. Do not sell it out of the SAQ. Do not treat it like the cash cow that you do with booze and cigarettes. No matter what you do, do not sell it in the same venue as booze and cigarettes, you know, sort of being able to hit the, the, the trifecta of decadence all in one-stop shopping. And uh, also make sure that if you are going to sell this stuff, do not sell it in food form because we've had, there have been terrible stories out of the U.S. where they, they, they sell, like, you know, marijuana-laced cookies uh, uh, and brownies and so on, and little kids get into this at home, and they've OD'd on this stuff. So I, I see their point there. But frankly, I know you're doing your job, and as health professionals, you'd probably rather not see this happen at all. But the fact of the matter is there is a, an interesting disconnect between between their point of view and I'm sure the rest of the governments. I know Carlos Latau earlier this year, our, our finance minister earlier this year, said Quebec's got no business. It's up for, to the feds to sell this stuff. He climbed down from that statement about 24 hours later because everyone knows there's a, there's a gold mine uh, that you can get from that. And let's face it, I, I think it's marvelous Quebec is running around saying we have a you know a billion dollar surplus. They'd love for that surplus to be two billion, three billion, four billion. And now that now that you know honestly, now that the re, the returns from the the numbers racket that they've been running because a lot of Quebec's not doing that great. Are are down a bit. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in Montreal just go across the border to the LCBO to get their booze. You know, this, this would be the next big thing. So I, I, my hat's off to the Montreal Public Health Department, but frankly, uh, to think that the government will, or any government will not look at this as an important source of revenue is yeah. perhaps to be in the wrong sense. So I guess they're saying what they felt they had to say given they're a Absolutely. public health I mean, department. I, yeah, okay. they're health professionals, yeah. you know. It's, All right. That's fine. Uh, Then there's a story, uh, and I had not heard about this. I had John McCallum on, uh, I guess, uh, last week talking about this whole immigration issue and, you know, very adamant in in saying that we're doing a wonderful job and things are going really, really well, despite perhaps some proof that that's, you know, not the case. But now there's some internal polls at federal immigration. What are they saying? What they're saying is, despite Mr. McCallum's running around saying, all the Canadians that I talk to, they want to have more immigrants, uh, internal, uh, internal polls conducted by, by McCallum's uh, uh, own department suggest that insofar as they know how many immigrants we're taking in at all, the, the present level is just right. There's a huge debate here, and, and to his credit, McCallum is saying this out loud. We need these immigrants because we're all getting older. We have jobs that have to be done. Um, what he's not saying out loud, but I think what a lot of people understand, as well as with all the other elements of that formula, our tax base is going to shrink. We, ha- we can't allow that to happen with what all the big-time spending that we're doing. So immigrants are an essential part of the, of the formula of whatever constitutes 21st century Canada. But the idea that Canadians, are, you know, or the suggestion that he's making, that Canadians are for some reason clamoring for, you know, bring on more immigrants, it's not exactly, it's, it's, it's not that close to the truth, at least not according to these surveys. You know, given the fact that we took, what did we take in t- final total, uh, 25,000 immigrants? Oh, goodness me. Uh, yeah, easily, easily. Like, overall, uh, uh, approximately a quarter of a million new immigrants come to Canada a year. Okay. okay. And, and, and the internal survey suggested that about 60% of Canadians felt this was, this was you know, this was enough, okay. you know. Um, but the idea of, of taking more than that, and I think there are concerns. I, I don't think this is, you know, your usual, oh, my goodness, a foreign menace coming. I think the idea, as a lot of people are saying, do we have the infrastructure to welcome that, new many, that many people and welcome them mm-hmm. uh, in, in, a, in an efficient and, uh, how can I put it, productive way. I think these are very legitimate questions. And, and the fact that, you know, sometimes this gets tangled up with the usual kind of concerns over, oh, these refugees are coming from, you know, the Middle East, whatever, uh, I think there is a, a real issue, and we have to be able to, to have that conversation. So I, I would, I, maybe Mr. McCallum will change his tone in the wake of this report in the Globe and Mail. Maybe he won't, but there are, I think there are very legitimate questions to be asked about, you know, Canada's, Quebec's uh, capacity to welcome people and and do so in a manner that's going to work for everybody concerned. Jim, have a good weekend. You too, buddy. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. Ethan Cox is heard regularly here on CJD, usually as part of the Gang of Four with Tommy Schnurmacher. Uh, decided to do some investigative journalism of his own this morning out in the streets of Montreal. Ethan, this goes back to the video that's now gone viral where we see a Montreal police officer. And I just want to be fair here and point out we're only sort of seeing this video halfway through from where it starts. This man in a wheelchair trying to cross Sherbrooke Street at around McGill College gets halfway across the street, 
stops there. The police come up, the one officer, and basically push him to the other side of the street and then start going through his backpack. So it makes the police look pretty guilty here in terms of not being able to deal with this man. You decided to go out and find out more. So what did you do? Yeah, yeah. He also swore at the man on the video, and it was it was a very disturbing video uh, for people who've seen it. So uh, just just the other day, Amanda Jelawicki with Global went out and, and found this cop and, and interviewed him or tried to interview him and asked him questions about this story. And I was really impressed that she did that because I thought that was an important type of journalism. There's such, you know, I know as a journalist that, that uh, the, the media relations department of the SPVM basically exists to stonewall. You never get interviews. You never get answers. There's, there's really never any accountability. So I thought it was really important that she went out and, and interviewed him. And so uh, so I went and I got a tip that he was at a particular corner, and I, I went to try and ask him some questions. And unfortunately, I didn't get much much more success than she did, and he just kept refusing to answer and sort of smirking and uh, and, and made fun of me a little bit uh, because my hands were shaking. I, I have a minor tremble or tremor, I'm sorry, Um so my hands were shaking a little bit, and so he was making fun of that and making fun of that to his supervisor. But uh, but he didn't answer any questions about, uh, about what had happened. Okay, so no questions answered from him. But I see that Montreal, the, the police commander here at Station 20, where this guy, I guess, would be, said that, uh, you know, what I said off the top, we haven't seen all the information here necessarily in the video. He said, this is based on the officer's account, that the guy in the wheelchair started to cross the street against a red light even though he had been advised not to and was told to go back, which he didn't. So I, I realize, you know, we tend to look at situations like this and go, the police were wrong. First of all, obviously, you don't swear at somebody. Although, again, I understand the man in the wheelchair did his share of swearing as well. So what's the bottom line here? From what you've seen and who you've talked to, who's at fault here? Well, I think we all want to make sure that we have the complete story. And if there's there are more facts out there that give us more information, then we all want to see those come to light. I think the frustrating thing here is that this is part of a broader pattern. And we see videos like this surfacing on a, on a really troublingly frequent basis. And I think it's a result of the fact that there are rarely consequences. When these things happen, if we watch these officers, it's very unlikely that they're going to miss a day of work as a result of this. And so when other officers see that and see that sort of no matter what you do, there aren't really any consequences, then, of course, that emboldens uh, people who are bad apples, people who are in the police force, who, who are inclined to, to treat people badly. It emboldens them to do that because they feel as if they can get away with it. And that's a broader problem. It's not about the facts in this case. It's about a, a troubling frequency that we see these type of incidents. Yeah, I think the one thing that bothers me, and I've heard this from people when we dealt with issues like this in the past, it's basically the attitude that the police will adopt here. Forget about if someone's, you know, got an iPhone going on, but this idea that at one point, from what I understand, this officer said to the man in the wheelchair, well, you know, I'm going to give you, uh, you're going to get three tickets. Now, he could have given him, and I said this earlier, you know, he deserved possibly to get a ticket for jaywalking because he did cross on a red light after being told not to. But then this whole aggressive idea of, you know what, you're not doing what I ask, you're not doing what I say, I'm going to give you more tickets. I'm not sure where that comes from. Yeah, and, and I mean, what I think struck a chord with this video and why it went viral is that this man is, is in a wheelchair, he's very quiet, you almost can't hear what he's saying, he's like the opposite of resisting, you know, and, and this cop is just so enraged with him, and it's so hard to understand what could have provoked that rage from, from a guy in a wheelchair, even if he did cross on the wrong light. Like, why would you treat someone like that? Yeah. It's, it's hard to understand. That part is the hard part to understand. I'm sure this story is not done with yet either. Ethan, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate have a nice it. Afternoon. You too. Ethan Cox. Uh, and that's a follow-up to the story of the man in the wheelchair. We'll see what happens. Police, by the way, the commander said he will not be getting those three tickets, but he might get a ticket for jaywalking. So this is very much a fluid story. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. I asked the question before the news how you'd feel if you woke up one morning or maybe found out one of your kids woke up one morning, discovered that there were pictures of her on the internet in an article titled 18 of the Hottest McGill University Girls on Instagram. And to be fair, there was also one that said or featured 12 of the hottest guys, but this time at Concordia. Well, you can imagine some people might have been okay with this, others not so much. Bryn Thomas is one of them. She's a McGill student and one of the girls featured on this site of MTL blog. And by the way, they have since taken this down because a lot of people started complaining about this. Bryn, how did you find out what had happened here? 
Uh, well, basically, I didn't find out until other people told me about it. So I got sent the link when I was in class. And what, and what was a whole bunch of my... Go ahead. Yeah, a whole bunch of my friends, basically, all over started sending me the link, and we kind of just opened it. And I was actually with two of my other friends that were featured on the page in the photo with me. Oh. And we opened it up and said, like, oh, there we are. So it sounds like your initial reaction really wasn't that bad. Uh, initially, no. It was more funny at first, and we didn't really think anything of it. And it wasn't until, like, it kind of, like, set in, and more and more people ended up seeing it. And then we, well, basically, then I started getting all the followers and all the messages. And then I was like, you know what, like, <laughs> this is really weird. I don't want to see myself on here anymore. So at that point, you're, are you, when you say you're getting all these messages, I'm assuming they're not all saying, hey, look, I saw your picture, whatever. You started to get some creepy ones, too? Yeah. I started on both Facebook and Instagram. I think, like, in the first day, I gained, like, seven followers just from, like, random people. Okay. Um, and they, yeah, like, there was a lot of, like, really creepy messages. And there was also just, like, a whole bunch of, like, other people being like, oh, wow, like, I saw you on here. And other people saying they wish they were on there, other things like that. Okay, so, again, I'm trying to understand. Are you, you don't sound that you're all terribly all that upset over this having happened, are you? I mean, I think it's a huge invasion of privacy. I mean, it's not like they asked us to put our photos up there at all. And if they had asked, I would have said no. Um, a couple of my other friends were on there, too. I mean, because the fact that we just, like, went online and saw a picture of ourselves, and, like, that itself was really, really creepy. Okay, but now the pictures that they used that this blog put up of you were public pictures. They're not off a private Instagram page, right? They're for anyone to see. Yeah, so when you publish on Instagram and you haven't switched to private, which after this I did, um, yeah, like it's in the public domain, so I guess like from a legal standpoint, they have every right to use those photos, as creepy as it is. Mm -hmm. And then I think like a lot of us, I know that most of my friends and I all switched to private right after this happened. Okay, uh, outside of the creepy messages you started getting, uh, beyond that, was there any fallout from this? Was there any pardon? Any fallout? I mean, did you hear back from, like, did your parents have something to say about this? Did you hear from anybody else? Did the people say, look, this is wrong and you should be uh, upset or offended by this? Honestly, no. I mean, I think it was just a bunch of my friends and I that, um, that started being like, you know, like, this isn't really that cool. Right. And then a whole bunch of other people were saying like, yeah, like, this is gross. And I think to a certain extent, there was a lot of that. But most of the messages and other things I got were all just like, oh, like, you're on here. Wow, that's so cool, which is Honestly, also really sad. Okay. Uh, did you happen to look at any, do you, I mean, outside of the girls that you mentioned, do you know any of the other girls on the site? Did you hear from any of them? Yeah, two of them are my friends, um, two outside of the ones in the picture with me. So, uh, yeah, no, a couple of the other girls that are on there, we all talked about it. Some of them didn't care, and then there was a couple of us that were like, yeah, no, we don't want this. Did you contact, I know the website's taken it down. Did you contact them at all, or was that part of the plan? Did you want them to take it down? Um, I think some of the girls did contact them. I'm not, I didn't personally. I just kind of talked to other people. Mm -hmm. um, and like everyone else, like the people that didn't want the pictures were doing stuff to get it taken down. So it seemed like okay. it was on the right track to do that. So for, for you, this is for all intents and purposes. This is like, okay, it happened. It's over. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's like, it's a good like reminder. I think that, you know, like just be careful what you're posting. If it had been a picture, like I didn't want a lot of people to see, uh, that would have been like another thing. Sure. But I think it's a good reminder of like, hey, you're putting these pictures out here. And especially like all of us, like we yeah. tagged McGill and then like this happened. Right. So to a certain extent, it's like a good reminder of you have to be careful what you post. You never know where it's going to go. W would you have ever I mean, did you post? I'm not asking a personal question. but I mean, did you post stuff online that now after what happened happened, you'd think, wow, I should never have done that. And I should take those pictures down. No, not necessarily. Okay. I like learned a lot from. I don't know. My, I guess okay. a lot of people told me in advance, like, you know, careful what you post, I'm fine. So basically, like, I don't out. have any pictures that I, re like, regret posting. But okay. uh, I think some people do, and, like, they need to be careful, too. All right. Well, listen, uh, I appreciate you talking to us. As I said, the website took this stuff down. Uh, so that's, I guess, the good news here. Although yeah. they're not they're not talking to anybody. I wonder how, you know, someone texted me and said, and it's a fair question to ask, the 12 guys from Concordia who are listed as the 12 hottest guys, what do you think their reaction is? I don't know. Uh, the only people I've heard that, I've only heard from, like, the female side of it. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how, like, they're reacting. But I think, like, you know, like, just because we're, the girls are reacting like this, I don't think it should just be 
how we should react. I think everyone like shouldn't have their pitchers being used for something unless they want them. Yeah, did you go check out the 12 guys? No. <laughs> okay, just check. By the way, <laughs> we should mention one other thing in here. If I'm correct, part of the problem here, outside of the fact that these pictures were taken, whether it's legal or not, and we'll try to find that out later on, mm -hmm. but they, they publish your name in there as well, did they not? Yeah, and that's why, like, I think a lot of us, too, like, it wasn't just, like, on Instagram, because they, they put our Instagram name, but they also did, like, our full name. So a lot of us started getting, like, a whole bunch of other people just recognizing us from that and right. finding us on other social media things. And then once they have your name, they can find a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Hey, Bryn, thanks a lot. Appreciate you talking to us today. Have a good weekend. Yeah, no problem. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. We check in with Pat Lagasse, La Press columnist, who joins us at this time every afternoon. So, Pat, yesterday you asked me about uh, Anglophones for an independent Quebec or whatever they're called. Uh, today, of course, they had their uh, giant press conference. Both of them were there. Uh, and, and we found out that they're a group of, I'm not sure who to believe, you think 40, I heard 50, then I heard 20. Uh, who are these people? I, I read that it's 20, and uh, apparently the, the, the lady who's uh, the head of Anglophones for Quebec's independence is, uh, was born in Nova Scotia, is a uh, visiting professor in Alabama, I think, English literature. She's uh, apparently living in Montreal. And yeah, she, she, what I read is that she has 40 members, and, uh, you know, I can barely believe that uh, the news media did cover this. I can barely, I can barely believe that I, I'm talking about yeah. this with you. You know, I think, I think it just says something about how, even though the, the, the question nationale is not important anymore, we still like and love to talk about it. And uh, e even for an oddity like that, uh, even for a group that, uh, you know, is, is claim claiming only 40 persons, which is about, I guess, the number of Quebecers who believe that Elvis is still alive. We still talk <laughs> about it. Yeah. But, uh, but, as, but, you know, I was wrong yesterday when I said that if, if they have meetings, these people, Anglos for uh, Quebec independence, they'll, they, they will be holding these meetings in a phone booth. At 40 persons, you, you'll need probably more like a uh, one of small uh, cell phone companies. Uh, yeah. Cheeks. Maybe a minivan. You know, uh, the thing, I heard a quote from her. I want you to hear, uh, she was on the air earlier today, this woman, Jennifer Drouin. She was on with Barry yeah. Morgan earlier in the day. I want you to hear this clip, and then I, I want to ask you something. There are, there are Anglophones who support sovereignty, and the idea was to bring them together and give them a collective voice so that they are heard uh, and to uh, dispel the myth that they don't exist at all, when in fact we do. And by we do, she means her and her couple of friends, I guess, who support this. But I want to point out one thing. This yeah. idea, and it came up in a later clip, that you know what? From the English side, people will say this, and we hear this often here when people call up. We kind of take, or maybe to be fair, the liberals take the English vote for granted. That, that's yeah. been the subject for a long, long time. So, sure. yeah, it's probably true that there are some people fed up with this provincial liberal government because promises are made and not kept, because nothing happens on the language mm -hmm. side. But that doesn't necessarily equate with them wanting independence. And I think that's where you draw the line, and that's where she hasn't drawn the line. Uh, I, I think she hasn't drawn the line, and I think that she's, you know, maybe a bit plain on words because she says that, uh, uh, you know, there's this myth that Anglos uh, are, are, are not supportive of Quebec's independence. Uh, I mean, myths do take root in some part of reality. So, so, so I, I'd say, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember that uh, the... the uh, <clears throat> Parti Québécois had a couple of um, uh, militants that were from the English community. I, I even think that there was a, a defector from another party. Was it Richard Holder, Holden? Yeah, Richard Holden, it, yeah. It, so, so they did even have, for a time, they did have a Quebec uh, Parti Québécois uh, MLA who was uh, hailing from the English community, but mm -hmm. he, was, he was a defector. But the, the thing is, uh, I, I think it will never... Uh, be a popular idea in your community, and and w what you're bringing up here is that the, the opposition, the, the opposite of, of of being very supportive of the Liberal Party is not being supportive of, of independence. Exactly. Think, you know what I find fascinating from from the Anglo's is why is it that uh, there's not much more support for uh, the CAC, for instance, or or, or its ancestor, the ADQ. Uh, led at the time by uh, Mario Dumont. This, this, this to me is a subject of intense curiosity. Maybe you can, uh, well, uh, you, you you can enlighten me about yeah, that. I'm not, I'm Why not sure. is it that there's so much support for support for federalism? I understand for the Liberal Party, 
I think they deserve a slap on the wrist sometimes. Yeah, and more than once. And I think, as I said, most Anglos would probably agree with you. But I think the difference there is take someone like Francois Legault. You know, before he changed his song, and he's changed it at least two mm. or three times that I can count now, this is a guy who was a PQ minister who talked about separation. And then when it was time to run in a provincial election, said, well, you know, uh, there'll be a moratorium for, I don't know, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, and we looked at that and went, wait a sec, if that's what he's saying today, what's he going to say when he gets elected? So I think that's where the English community, to some degree, backs off and doesn't have an alternative to vote for. Yeah, true. But I think that the, the, the political reality is that if François Legault were to be elected premier and were to change his tune and, says, and said, you know, uh, we're going to hold a referendum in the next two years, I think his, his caucus and his, his cabinet would implode because you have a lot of people who are not at all sovereignists mm -hmm. in, in, in his caucus. So I think that, you know, as, as, as an alternative, it's not that odd. And, and sometimes when I see how the, the – because I do think that the, the liberals take you guys, the Anglos, for granted, uh, but at the same time, why wouldn't they? I mean, you guys vote for them sure. in droves. So what have I got to lose? What have I got to tell you? What have I got to give you as far as policy is concerned and everything? Yeah, but that, you, that's making the Donald Trump argument. What have you got to lose? And, and we're not buying that, I don't think, on this no, side. No, no, so. no. I mean, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. No, what I mean is I, I put my, myself uh, in, in the liberals' uh, pants and I say, what have I got to lose by not, you know, being kind, not being uh, receptive to what the Anglo oh, think? I see. They okay. will vote for us anyway. anyway. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah, well, that's the case, and that's the case. I guess it's always been here. I just think the other case, and I don't want to bring up the CAC because I know there are other parties involved, but I think Anglos look at them as those are definitely sovereignist parties. But in the case of Francois Legault, this is the same guy yeah. who has also said that if, you know, he was prime minister, premier here, uh, he'd like to basically take all federal institutions and have them become French. In other words, banks and the post office, there'd be no English in there either. Anglos hear that and they're like, wait a sec. OK, that's not no, going to wash with me either. And you know what? For, for, from an Anglo standpoint, I think that the CAC could would be a viable alternative. But as you said, you know, François Legault, even though, and I believe him, I believe him that when he says he just, he's not a, a sovereignist anymore, but he used to be a sovereignist. He yeah. was finance minister and education minister in a separatist government. So, so that's a pretty, that's, that's a pretty big heritage, even though you're saying that you're not anymore. Uh, but, but you guys are left, you know, you guys are left in, 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 in the hands of the uh, Quebec Liberal Party, and I think that's why you're being taken for granted and not taken care of. You know, as I'm listening to you say this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if you're an opposition party, like like the CAC or like, uh, you know, uh, Option Nationale, whoever, that ought to be a great way to try to get English votes, make us feel guilty enough yeah. that we're being taken for granted and we'll vote for you, but it's it's never going to happen. But look, look, and also look at the CAC. It's it's still you know a very very uh, French uh, speaking party. Uh, but you know what? I, I I'm looking at how the uh, the electoral vote is is, uh, uh, is, is, is is has been set up in the last few years. And and there's something interesting. I think we're going to come to a head where I think either the CAC or the PQ will survive because either if if both party survive and you know manage to 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 uh, they know that if 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 both parties are alive the quebec liberal party will always right. win the election because they'll split the french sure. vote but i think we're coming to a head where one of those parties will die in a coming couple of years. well we shall see seems to me lately jean-francois lisey is getting pretty emboldened you know he's making it seem like he's already the de facto leader before the the vote even happens so we'll see We'll uh, see, but but remember, part, votes within a party for a party leadership are always a tricky thing to call in advance because I mean the the, the samples that that uh, the polls uh, take to evaluate who's going to win or who's going to lose are 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 are, are, are I, would, I would say that not 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 that they're biased. The problem is that it's tough to uh, to poll only people who have the right to well, vote sure. within uh, party yeah. leadership. Not representative of the general population, yeah, there you go. that's yeah. for sure. Pat, have a great weekend. You too. Talk Take to care. you next week. Pat Lagas, a press columnist. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. Back to Tommy's Take here on the show today. Tommy Schnurmacher joining me as he does usually regularly in this spot. And I thought we'd start off by talking about, uh, well, politics. Is that okay with you, Tommy? Sure. You Absolutely. sure? Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right.
You don't talk sports? No, it's okay. Not today because it's no, Friday. It's right. Yeah, fair it's enough. Okay. So yeah, it's uh, all right. No problem. Big furor today over the fact that the liberals, a couple of liberals, two top aides to the uh, prime minister, uh, turned in a moving bill, moving expenses bill for a couple of hundred thousand bucks. And you know, in watching all the pundits talk about this over the past say twenty four to forty eight hours, uh, first of all, this government of openness and transparency wasn't so transparent after all. But then people are giving him credit for at least having dealt with it relatively quickly. You buy that? No, I don't purchase that for even a second. First, they didn't say anything. Then they said it was somebody. Then they said who it was. Then they said there was nothing wrong with it. Then they said there was a little bit something wrong with it. So we're going to pay back some of the money. So that's about as far from transparent as you can get. And what's outrageous is they said, well, what we did was within the rules, and it's true. What did they do? They decided to charge the taxpayer for their moving expenses, and the amounts are absolutely stunning. One move costs $126,669. One of the editorials of the Globe and Mail wanted to know where they were moving from, Mars. But, of course, it wasn't only just the move. Now, Aaron, this is the situation. The guy who is uh, his... Principal Secretary, uh, Gerald Butts, is also a very good friend of his from way, way back. He's his number one confidant and his advisor. And he's moving from Toronto, where he has a beautiful house, to Ottawa. He sells the house in Toronto to buy the new one in Ottawa and makes a profit of $630,000. That's pretty uh, amazing. Not something terrible to sacrifice. Really? That's so, how much he made? 630 grand the, in selling the house? The profit. Wow. Right. So that's because he sold it in the area of about a, okay. a million dollars. So part of uh, take away from that profit, you take away the commission, the fees, the commission. Right. No, he decided that would be better off if you, not you personally, Aaron, you and I, we paid and taxpayers paid, paid that. After he made $600,000. Yes. Yes. So what they could have done, right, is because in the rules, it says that you could do this. It doesn't oblige you to do it. And the minister, it's up to the minister about how much it's mm-hmm. going to be. The minister in this case being Justin Trudeau, he could have said, hey, you know, you made more than half a million dollars profit. Don't charge for the commission. But he did Charge for the move. That could have happened. It didn't happen. And the same thing with uh, Katie. Uh, Katie Telford, his former campaign manager, now his chief of staff. She also, well, she didn't do that well. She only made close to half a million dollars profit on the house that she did. And so they're giving back. Think of this. Now they've decided after it's become public that, and they expect us to be pretty grateful because they put this on their Facebook page. They're paying back. They're going to give back some of the money. Ms. Telford said she would pay back 23000 for the personalized cash payout, that part, but n- not, the, not the rest of it. They're going to pay the unreasonable part of it, but the rest, the commission, that, that is considered reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're going to pay back about a, a third and two-thirds they still would prefer. Okay, so, so we, really, we really... We picked up the tab for them. No one noticed it, but they weren't paying attention. They were uh, too busy. Now, when you have moving expenses, a company wants you to move, right? They want you to move from one city to the other. You say, I don't want to move there, right? Uh, let's say somebody wants to move you from Montreal to... Uh, Vancouver. Say, I don't want to move there. If I sell my house there, I'm going to lose a big amount of money. Maybe I don't want that job. Over here, they're moving from Toronto to Ottawa. So they can sell the house for lots of money there and buy it for less in Ottawa. That's number one. Number two, if they don't get this uh, travel allowance, this moving allowance, are they going to say, nah, you know what? I don't need the gig. I don't want to be chief of staff. Uh, I don't want to be principal secretary. Of course not. And they're well paid and they should be. They're working hard. They should be paid for their work. There was no reason for this. And they're shrewd shrewd people. They're both brilliant and intelligent people. They should have known uh, that this wouldn't look good, but it's a sense of entitlement, right? I mean, did or or they thought maybe it would never become uh, public and it'll be just one global figure and no one will figure out who got paid how much for what? Suddenly makes Bev Otis $16 glass of orange juice uh, pale by comparison. What huh? did, yeah. And only one glass. Right. right. Let's move on and talk about what's uh, trying to happen right now on Notre Dame Street. Uh, and this is the borough, I guess, the Sidwest borough, deciding, you know what? Uh, we've heard about the gentrification of Notre Dame Street, and now we're going to step in. We're not going to allow new restaurants to open within 25 meters of existing restaurants. So they're controlling 
what businesses get to open and what don't. Well, yes, Aaron, because it was getting to be, you know, very successful. And, you know, like people were going there and having a good time and restaurants are opening and they were hiring people and they were making a profit. And so it, it just somebody had to do something. Government had to do something. They're interfering with business. What kind of people open a restaurant there if they think they can make it? The rents are, I'm told, are extremely expensive. Uh, one, somebody said that their rent increased from $23,000 for the year to $63,000. Mm-hmm. Many businesses can't make it. You're not going to open up a little dépanneur and sell a few packages of cigarettes when you're paying that kind of uh, rent. And it, and uh, I think it makes perfect sense. They should absolutely butt out. It wasn't a strip club they're opening. Uh, it, it, it's going to become prosperous. The rents are going to go high. Uh, we should be happy that there are parts of Montreal that are successful, where businesses are succeeding. And I believe there may be stretches of it without construction, which may explain the success of the restaurants. What about the city or the borough's argument that, you know what, uh, people who live there, there are a lot of people living just, you know, past, say, Atwater, uh, who won't be able to afford to eat in these restaurants. This is just for people who can afford to, you know, have dinner for $100 a night. What about that argument? Well, when you make that argument, so what is going to happen? So you won't allow these restaurants to open, so what will happen? Uh, what will happen to the rents? The, the dependent owners still won't be able to afford it. They won't be able to open up a shop there. Uh, what you could do is, you know, close down all of the stores, uh, make it derelict for a while, then the rents will go lower, then they'll be able to have businesses that will serve more of some of the people in, in the area. That's what gentrification does does to stop it artificially doesn't really work and you know we've had protests in that area as well you know businesses have been spray painted they've had you know there's been vandalism as well those are people supposedly living there not liking this idea either well, this, the not-in-my-backyard syndrome, if they don't like the idea and they manage to scare these businesses away, which is a possibility, if they do that, what do they think will happen instead? Like, how, how will things improve? Yeah. How will things for that area improve as a result of that? Okay. Last thing today, I understand you had a very traumatic day today. You left your home without yourself. A couple yourself. of, day. no, a couple of a days, couple days ago. ago. Okay. So, uh, uh, getting on the bus, I'm about to get on the bus. It's about two or three minutes to go. And, uh, okay, keys, wallet, other pocket, phone. I don't have the phone. There's like two and a half minutes left. So I asked the bus driver, are you going to stay here for another four minutes? He said, no, I'm leaving in two and a half minutes. I figured two and a half minutes, I can't go all the way back to get the phone. So I get on the bus without a phone. (gasps) So I'm just sitting there wringing my hands, like (laughs) looking up at my palm and there's nothing in it. And... Okay, now uh, I'll, I'll look out the window. That's something. Oh, look, some people got on the bus. Wow, that lady's tall. Did nothing and, to read. And, oh, that at person all? is short. No, I didn't have anything to read. So okay. I just, I, you know, what? I'm going to sit here like I used to sit on a bus when I didn't have a phone and look out the window. Look out, look out the window. Look at people getting on, mm-hmm. on and off, and the, the bus. And it was really interesting. I noticed, like for instance, as the bus goes by around Cote d'Ange, and. Uh, Cote d'Ange and Queen Mary. There's some nice plants there. There's all kinds of planters there. And I noticed some stores I didn't know. No, there's an oratory not far from there. Yes, there seemed to be something with a big dome there. Right. So uh, I thought it was very interesting. And to tell you the truth, I was uh, tense for the first four or five minutes, like really nervous about it. And then trying to figure out like who to send, like if I called like a helicopter, if they went to the top of the building and went to the balcony and got there. Like I was thinking every crazy scenario and figured, you know, there's nothing you can do. Uh, you, the only way you could have done it is go home. You'd miss the bus. You wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to get ready. For, and you went the whole time. day without your phone? I went the entire... But you know what? After the first 10 minutes, it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good so for you. It's, it's a real addiction. Like, you really, if you don't have it... And when I talked about it with other people, they said, oh, there's no way they can handle it. Handle it. Yeah. E- even for a, a few hours. I'm glad you survived. Thank you. I, I am, too. Tommy's Take with Tommy Schnurmacher. Thank you, Tommy. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800.